Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, the opportunity for you, our listeners, to get an idea, hopefully a proven practical one from our guests that will help you run a more sustainable and successful business. A little bit of background about our guest today. He is competitive. You know, some people are competitive with others. Some people are competitive with themselves. I think he's pretty much both. The second thing that I've learned about him is he has an inherent burning desire to get better. He is not at all comfortable that he's as good as he can or should be, and he's willing to do the work to get better. Very results-driven, wicked smart, tremendously smart guy, quick. And then the the last thing I'm I'm throwing in here, he's very, very self-aware. I don't know that he always has been, but he's continuing to work at that. He really knows his strengths and weaknesses now is about as good as any leader with whom I work. He's Chris Delaney. He's the CEO for Goodyear Tire and Rubber for their Europe, Middle East, and Africa areas. And Chris, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Thank you, Ed. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, I don't know who you're talking about, but I appreciate the uh, the intro. Uh, you know I'm talking about you. We've been on a journey together. 2016, I think, the summer of, of 16, we met in Akron. You were then the CEO for the Asia-Pacific area. How does somebody get to Goodyear at the level you're at? What, what's the journey that brought you to Goodyear? A bit of a circuitous route, to, to be honest, but I had spent 32 years in the consumer products industry before I joined Goodyear, and I spent 20 of them with Procter & Gamble right out of school, 10 in America, and then I spent another 10 in in the former Soviet Union and, and running part of their Middle East operations before going back to, to Cincinnati, their corporate headquarters for a while. I then, uh, after 20 years with, with that company, decided to uh, change companies, and I stayed in the fast-moving consumer goods and worked for the Campbell Soup Company where I was in a sales role for a while, and then I was running their emerging markets division. They moved me down to Australia to run Asia Pacific, which is based out of Australia because of a large food business they have. Fell in love with Australia, thought I would live there the rest of my life. I actually left Campbell's to run a publicly listed food company called Goodman Fielder, an old food company that was a turnaround. And uh, we did that for about four years when we attracted the attention of conglomerate uh, out of out of Asia, who made an, an unsolicited offer to buy the company. And after uh, getting 99% of my shareholders in, in alignment, we ended up selling the company and I found myself blissfully unemployed. I was then receiving some phone calls from Rich Kramer's office, the CEO and chairman of of Goodyear. And, and quite frankly, I told him there has to be somebody more qualified than I for the job. <laughs> I, I know nothing about the automobile industry other than I have I have a car and I have tires on them. And I've been working in consumer products, so industrial wasn't there. But quite frankly, a number of people I respected who who had served in the company and on the board, including the former vice chairman of P&G, Werner Geisler, who's still on our board. As I got to know the journey of the company, and obviously Goodyear is an iconic American company. It didn't have to be educated. But the management team and the turnaround of this great old iconic company the opportunity, and quite frankly, the complexity of the tire business really hooked me in. 
And I found myself moving from Shanghai, and I said to my wife, Carmel, do we have one more move left in us? And we moved back up to uh, uh, into China, Shanghai, and I found myself uh, leading Asia Pacific. And, and now you are in Brussels, so you had another move left in you. Um, yeah, I unfortunately um, I had to apologize to my wife once again for another move. Yeah. But uh, Rich Kramer, our chairman, asked about three and a half years ago if I'd be willing, Carmel and I would be willing to, to move to, to, to Europe um, to take over the European, Middle East, and African business and, and, and work on a uh, turnaround there, which is what we've been doing for the past three and a half years. When you talk about complexity, and you've know, you know I've said this, and to the audience I will confirm once more that I've never been around a business that's more complex than what it takes to make and place a tire on somebody else's car. That You saw it was complex. Does it still confound you how much how many different things have to be done to, to be successful in the business? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I decided to make a significant change is I felt at over 30 years, I really wanted to challenge myself with a new industry and, and it kind of rejuvenated me, gave me energy. Um, but I never imagined the layers of complexity that, that I consequently found. Um, it's, it's a highly technical business with significant technology in, in the absolute tires. It's a, it's a difficult business in that the consumer cannot see uh, yep. uh, the, comp- the the technology in the tire. They all look fairly similar other than tread pattern, yet there are significant amounts of research, development, materials, construction um, uh, in, in order to create a high-performance tire, whether that's for passenger cars, commercial trucks, air- aviation, construction equipment. They're all very unique. Um, you add on top of that that you know, almost every new vehicle in the world has a unique set of tires that are built specifically for it. You're talking about not just technically complex, but the supply chain, the manufacturing supply chain gets increasingly complex. And then last but not least, you look at um, the fact this is a long cycle business. Um, It's highly capital intensive. Um, Factories are big, very expensive. You must get that right. Capacity utilization is key. Um, yet you only purchase if you're in a passenger car tires, maybe once every three years, obviously a commercial truck and a long haul will, will do that more often, maybe every, every six months, sometimes even sooner. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a long cycle business. And therefore you need to understand that and your decisions take time to make that, that, that impact. So therefore, you know, that's just the first layers of complexity that I understood. And every year I'm here, I learn something more. I'll be honest with you, Ed, you know, I've I've only been in this industry for five and a half years, but I'm scratching the surface. When I sit around (laughs) our senior management table, um, collect knowledge about this industry and how to run it is is pretty daunting. And I'm still enjoying the learning curve as I go. Well, you know, because you are curious and like to learn, it's it's certainly no no end in sight for that part of your your role. A couple of thoughts and uh, questions that actually come to mind now. Um, one, when the business is complex as it is in the tire industry, how do you help your people simplify the work that needs to be done so they can focus, so that they can have clear priorities when there are so many, I would guess, competing agendas? You know, I I think you always have to start with the end in mind. In our business, and we have very different businesses, the 
the, the passenger business is, is, is an OE, original equipment manufacturer in some respect. That's where the technology comes from, meeting those demanding customers' needs. But 80% or more of our volume in passenger is actually sold in the aftermarket or the replacement market. And that's an end user who is a little bit less uh, sophisticated in understanding what their needs are. So that's a different marketing uh, opportunity. Right. When you get into the, the, the what I call the B2B businesses, whether it's commercial truck or aviation or whether it's construction, you're talking about dealing with very sophisticated customers who know as much about the performance of your tire as you do and actually know the performance of that tire. So as always, I, I, I coach my team on let's start with the end in mind. What is that customer consumer's expectation? How well are we meeting it or not? Okay. And benchmarking ourselves against our competition as well as our own standards and the customers to really bring out what are our, what are our opportunities. And then we bring that back through the value chain to understand how we can uh, how we can better meet those needs. But the interesting thing about this business that I find is you can do all that right, but if the back end of the business, which is these very significant and sophisticated R and D, um, uh, you know, pipelines of products innovation the massive manufacturing and then the distribution, you can get the front end right, but if you don't match it with the right back end, it has catastrophic consequences. So being focused about what the problem is you're trying to solve and ultimately the value you're trying to create will help us and always does prioritize what's most important. We're going to come back to that, but I, I want to come back. Uh, I want to, I want to get focused on how you have decided your, you know, what your style of leadership and management's about. So you've worked under some good, maybe even some great leaders and executives. You've worked under some poor ones. Give me one or two. Uh, let's just say one lesson that you've learned from someone else. I'm, I'm not really interested so much in the who as what you learned that you've made part of your approach to management and leadership from a positive standpoint. And and then likewise, what's one painful lesson that you've had that you've that you've had no influences the way you manage and lead? Yeah, I'm going to cheat and give you two on the first one, because as you were asking the question, two things jumped in mind, and, and quick on both okay. of them. But I worked for, for a leader um, when, when I, in my first really significant senior leadership roles when I moved into Central and Eastern Europe for, for Procter & Gamble, and it was really where I was moving out of middle management into more senior management positions. I worked for a very talented gentleman who um, who, who really embodied believing that people were the, the the secret sauce in his business. He invested the time and energy, not just to know me, but to know uh, my family. He would make sure that I was getting both professionally and personally everything he could give us to make, make us successful. And my wife has a very famous story about one country we were in when, you know, there was a significant security issues and he came in and in a normal management cocktail party, realized how how stressful the situation was, ordered all of us out of the room so he could talk to our partners to understand what the issue was, and then he spent the next day solving it, okay? And, and it was really his demonstration of what was really important to him and to the enterprise and putting it first at all times, even, you know, and it really was about making sure the people on the ground were being able to deliver the second individual was a CEO I worked for at Campbell's who, you know, we talk about leadership. It was very curious when I first worked for him. Um, his name is Doug Conant. And he 
literally took leadership not as a interesting topic to talk about once a month, but as the critical way that he assessed his management team and ran his business. Um, and he personally led a leadership um, uh, course that he took a small number of us through every two years. He rotated it with about 12 to 15 people and personally led it. And he was the first person that really helped me understand wow. leadership is not an inherited trait. This isn't something you pick up on your day off. It's a, a skill you have to hone and you have to work at in order to get better at it. So those were two very influential folks. You know, interestingly, you know, uh, probably using those as the examples, the, the bad leader I worked for was somebody who put himself ahead of the enterprise. Okay. It was more important to him to get the recognition of making the decision than it was getting the right decision. And quite frankly, you know, it, it was the epitome of, of, of a good energy or bad energy and, and really, really did not leave organizations after he, he, he touched them feeling better than they were before. And quite frankly, he, he taught me as well, reminded me of what was so important about those other two examples and what the deteriorating performance was in the teams because of that leadership behavior or lack of leadership, I would say, and therefore the deterioration and performance of the team. So, um, you know, interesting experiences both ways. You know, the uh, I don't know about for you, most of the great lessons I've learned have been because of bad experiences. Uh, I'm not saying I don't learn from success, but it, it the, the, the bad ones tend to stick with you. And I know you've become a big believer in the importance of, you know, your first team and that 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 supersedes your function i'm i'm curious then about um when you work for this bad leader was the team that he led even a team or was it more a work group because it was every person for themselves no it, it was it, we met together and had work processes together but it was not a team he he would generally yeah retreat to a small group that he would coterie that he would go around him to make real decisions and then bring them back out but as you say you know he was a valuable teacher to me i'll be honest with you because he formed oh, yeah. um some impressions on me that reminded me of what i thought was most important and how i wanted to lead so it, it's interesting I, I would say that experience was as instrumental in in my personal leadership journey as, as the good one was i don't want to embarrass you but but i have to just tell our audience that the work that you've done to be a better version of yourself as a leader the last couple of years um is is really remarkable for somebody that's had as much success and 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 advanced as far as you've advanced in the in the business hierarchy knowing you it's not surprising that you've worked this hard but a lot of executives who reach organizations the size and scale of of the one you're part of generally can find a way to rationalize why they don't need to work as hard as you have to address opportunities for improvement and and um so I'm curious about is that something that is is just is part of who your your DNA makes you that willingness to do that work <sighs> You know, listen, as you said in my introduction, and which is true, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly competitive and, 
you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a family of, you know, if we had four boys and in, in less than five years and, you know, uh, we just were naturally competitive with one another. And, and, you know, the, the, the sisters-in-laws of my, my brother's partners and, and mine laugh about us. Um, <laughs> and I guess that part of my training early on, but truthfully in this assignment in the past three years, I would tell you it's much more driven by, um, by my team. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've signed up as a team on to make this EMEA business the best it can possibly be. And, and I also have a great team, as you know, who is willing to be honest with me. And, and when I disappoint them or when I, I, I don't um, live up to my own expectations about how I'm going to lead, they're courageous and are willing to tell me. And that's helpful. Um, that's really helpful. The other point is I just, you know, as you say, because I hate to lose, I don't want to be the reason yeah. why this organization is not yeah. successful. Okay. You know, I don't want to be the barrier to our success. Okay. So I owe it to my leadership team and I owe it to the organization to, to continue to work on my own skills and make sure I can be the best leader I can be. So we can collectively deliver this, this, this mission that we're on. Are you more humble today than you were three years ago? Uh, I don't know about three years ago. I'm not sure. But, you know, I, listen, I, I am constantly humbled by being around great people. Also, you know, seeing people accomplish what they what they can't do. I, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about I was completely humbled by the organization's performance during the COVID crisis. Um, you know, I. It, you know, and I, and I want to brag and everyone, I think, has their own success stories through this thing. But what the organization was able to uh, to deliver, I'm ashamed to say I wasn't um, visionary enough to think we could do. OK. And, and the team basically over delivered on almost every single thing that we asked them to do. And quite frankly, put up a pretty, pretty high standard for success and that we're now trying to build off of. So, you know, I don't know about if I'm any more humble or not and whether I'm even humble at all, I'll be honest with you. But I really respect, <laughs> you know, that tremendous commitment and how, how not just hard but smart the organization worked over the past, you know, year. And, and you know, that... That keeps us all humble, quite frankly, when we see organizations do that, rise up and do that. The success that you accomplished or achieved in the 2020 under very difficult circumstances, was that in part because the pandemic made the business simpler? I don't think the pandemic made the business simpler. I think we got better at saying what was important. If you go back to my original question, you know, yeah. work back from the end and then make sure you focus yeah. on what you're trying to solve. We, not just in EMEA, but I think in the company, one of the things we really, really did well was had a very sharp focus on what we call share cost and cash. Um, and, and we really said we're only going to measure the organization on what is most important at this moment in time. You, you will have noticed that earnings is not, was not part of that uh, because our, right. in our industry, when you, when you saw in, 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 you know, March and April of last year, 80% of the industry disappear because no one was moving. And then a year later, still not be back up to the industry levels that you had. That's going to have a significant impact on what the profit pool is and, and, and what right. the overall earnings are. But so we, we said we're going to concentrate on what we think is most important 
growing our share the right way in a, in a down market, um, making sure we're, we're delivering a cost structure that's realistic to the, to the outlook and making sure we're prioritizing what's important, and then generating cash flow, which was so important in this. Interestingly, we also ended up with good earnings because we were focused on it. But I think it was the sharpness that we had about what was important and then putting the talent of the organization against what was most important delivered outstanding results. And there's a lesson learned from us that we don't want to lose when we get back into post-COVID. Yeah, yeah. Keep, keeping that kind of clarity and focus is a, a real lever to, to improve performance. I don't know if you were exposed to organizational health premises or concepts before we met in 2016. You've certainly embraced it over the past three years in EMEA. What's the difference about how you run a team now when you think about organizational health principles and concepts compared to prior to that, if, if there are, if there are any differences. Yeah, I was exposed. And, you know, when I go back to the Doug Conant example, you know, Doug, you know, really was an organizational health, quite frankly, leader. I mean, he, he really believed engagement was a lead indicator, not a lag indicator. And, and, and religiously worked on it. But I think, Working, um, and I compliment you because I think you've taken, you know, and helped me think even more differently and get to the next level on what I'm thinking through here. And, and in particular, going back to this lesson that organizational health is an, is an absolute essential part of delivering your results and therefore needs to be on the agenda, um, not every once in a while, but on a regular basis every time we meet. And that we work on being a more cohesive and aligned team that's more highly effective. And we spend the time and reserve the time to talk about how to do that um, is really important. And I think over the past three years, I've probably done that more regularly and ensured our team more regularly did it, which I think is paying dividends today. And, you know, as you've seen, I think we're we're coming together as a team um, and, you know, have growing in confidence and, and quite frankly, I think leading the or, our organization better than we have in, in recent years. Every, every great team ultimately has a bit of a swagger about it. And you can start to see that happening with uh, not in all aspects of the business, but in some, some areas it's, it's starting to happen. That, that's cool. That's it's exciting. Did you, did you know the amount of, work that you were signing up for when you went down this path or did you just say we got to get started and we'll figure it out as we go along what, what was the thinking do you remember yeah I, you know and are you talking specifically about organizational health or in yeah 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 at EMEA and 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 bringing me i mean if going to the time and the expense to bring me across the pond to even do the work no we 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 knew um that our, our organization had been through a challenging number of years um and had you know, had lower engagement levels than, than, than we would ever like, and quite frankly, a challenged business. So we, you know, we, myself and, and my team, you know, I think we knew what we were signing up for. Um, I don't think we had as clear a vision about how to fix it. And I think we had some false starts, first as, a, as an individual team and then as a broader team. But I think one of the smart things we did if you remember, was 
you know, first of all, defining the time concept of first team. Okay. What is our first team? Okay. And, and, and truly committing to that. And in my case, yeah. it is the senior leadership team as an officer of the company. My first team is the CEO's team. It actually isn't the EMEA team. And I make that clear to my right. organization because I have a responsibility right. to make the decisions that are right for the total organization, not just for EMEA. But my direct reports first team is EMEA, you know, not their not their business unit or not their function, but the collective enterprise. OK. And right. from the beginning, right. we got a very aligned mission that it was going to be EMEA first one team and has been very clear. The second thing I think that we that we did very smartly that really helped us on this journey was we said, we've got to make sure we are cohesive and aligned first before we start working on everyone else. And we were realistic about how long it would take us for the leadership team to get there yeah. before we started to engage and expect others. And, you know, we literally in the beginning said it's going to take a year for every layer. OK, it took us probably the better part of year and a half or so for us to get there. And then we did a very good job, I think, of the next layer down, the top 150, okay, what we call the extended leadership team. And we see a higher level of engagement. Um, we see greater alignment in that group today. And, and now we're working the next level down in the organization. Um, and I think that was a very important decision that we made, Ed, because I think we could have tried to boil the ocean and gotten nowhere. And instead, we're making right. steady improvement. Um, if somebody was about to get started on that journey uh, as a leader and executive, um, knowing what you know now, what what advice would you give them about what they're about to embark on? You know, I think always it's helpful to be clear about what the problem is you're trying to solve. And, it, and yeah. as you know, Ed, I think that's where we stumbled around in the dark for a while. Okay. We had, um, you know, we had theories about why we were where we were. And I was chief theorist, so I would put my own out. And some of them were right, but a lot of them weren't. Okay. And, and I think really understanding the issue that you're trying to solve in the business and the organization was critically important because once we really got clear about that, we made tremendous progress. The second thing I would say is, is um, organizations are very complex organisms. Okay. Um, and, you know, as Mr. Deming used to say, you know, they're perfectly designed to produce the result that they do. And you've got to oh, recognize yeah. that. And therefore, you can't just talk about a different result if you don't change something. Okay, so the organization is working on what you what you're telling them to work on, what you what you are measuring, um, and if you have not made the right choices to have the resources of the organization working against the right thing, you're not going to get a, be a better result. So that's why be patient to make sure you understand what the issues are and what you're trying to solve before you leap to solutions, I think would be the single best piece of advice I can give someone. The journey's not over. The, the, you should see his face audience. You should see his face when I said that. <laughs> Sometimes doing audio only robs you uh, in the audience of some of the benefits of what you could gain in communication. But regardless, uh, how, how far along in the journey are you in terms of achieving what you know is p now possible for EMEA? Are, are you 30% of the way there? Are you 70%? Any, any, any way to answer that? You know, I think we are halfway to where we want to be organizationally because I, I think we are 
very aligned and cohesive at the top part of the organization, but we have a long way to go before we get to the plant floor or, you know, warehouse floor or every salesperson. Yep. And, and, and it will that will just take time as we enroll and right. cascade. Um, I would say we're, we're very clear now on what success looks like for the business. Um, and because of the of 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 the the alignment and cohesiveness and energy level that we have today and commitment in 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 the organization, you know, I would say we're we're probably more than halfway to getting fixed. But having said that, there is an awful lot to go and do. Um, yeah. And you know, yeah. And and the beauty of this journey is it's never over. Okay. Um, we have a no. we have a, a business model that, that Ed's very familiar with. It's called the Connected Business Model, um, which you know our our Americas group really invented and created, and the rest of us are learning and adapting, is what I like to say it. But if you, if if you spoke to you know the leader of of North, of the Americas, Steve McClellan, my peer there, you know, and you asked him about the connected business model that he envisioned when he started that journey and the one that he is now working on, they're very different. They've evolved. So yeah. to me, this journey never ends. I mean, as we get successful and we get a level of success and competency, you know, we will re- redefine what success looks like so that we technically never get there. But we continue to build the capability to win in the marketplace and win in the organization um, and continue to create a great business and a place that everybody wants to work. Um, you know, and that's really what we're trying to do. You're well on your way. There's no question about it. He's Chris Delaney, CEO for Goodyear Tire and Rubber in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Chris, a lot of times when people are guests on this program, somebody in the audience may have a question they may may want to explore further. Is there a way for people to reach out to you if they had a question that would be appropriate? Yeah. Do you want to share that? Sure. Sure, they can. They can just send me an email on um, my my email address is Chris C H R I S underscore Delaney D E L A N E Y at Goodyear dot com. I want to thank you. Your time is so precious, and you're always so generous uh, uh, with that with me and and with our audience in particular. That's uh, I know there's a lot to take away from this. Uh, you're a good man. Thanks for being on the Ed Epley Experience, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ed, for the time, and good luck to everybody out there. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y, group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.